Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Jose Zaylot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. This is part three of my interview with Mary Rice Hassan, director of the Catholic Women's Forum at the Ethics Public Policy Center. In part one, Mary discussed the forum's Person and Identity Project and spoke about what gender ideology is and some of the many challenges it presents. In part two, she explained where gender ideology came from and how it has become entrenched in our culture, particularly in our public schools. In this interview, Mary focuses on the so-called Equality Act. Mary Rice Hassan, welcome back to Bioethics on Air. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be part of this conversation. Yeah, it's funny. Our, our listeners wouldn't know this, but we recorded parts one and two a number of weeks ago. And so this is kind of a, as we're doing part three, it's kind of a reunion. So it's kind of great to have you back. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. All right. So let's get right into it because we got a lot to talk about today. So Mary, I was wondering, can you tell us about the so-called Equality Act? What is it? What's problematic with it? What practical challenges does it bring? Well, great question. It's certainly dominating the news, and I think people have a lot of questions about it. I think the first thing to realize is that it piggybacks on really important, uh, very good civil rights law that's already existing. So the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and subsequent provisions and, and amendments and things like that is a series of laws that makes it illegal for people to discriminate against someone on the basis generally of race, national origin, in some cases, sex, there are some exceptions there. Um, and, and so the idea is that this, this uh, set of civil rights laws is what allows people to participate in society and to, to be able to be, to, to be part of our civil society, to, you know, to, to do everything from shop to vote to, to uh, own a business, et cetera. So it's, it's a vital set of laws. But what this act in particular does is it says, all right, we're going to change some things about the Civil Rights Act. For one, we're going to redefine sex and we're going to import into that protections that, as they describe them, for sexual orientation and gender identity. So the purpose of the Equality Act is really to enshrine into law a series of wide-ranging uh, legal provisions that grant um, rights is, is not quite the right word, but privileges, really, and expansive legal rights in terms of being able to sue or accuse people of discrimination uh, into just so much of the federal civil rights law, including Fair Housing Act and, and things like that. Title IX would be affected. So it's it's deceptive. The, the title is wonderful. Who wouldn't be for something called the Equality Act? <laughs> it really right. isn't about that. Unfortunately, right. Takes an approach to civil rights law that's sort of winner take all, and in this case, the winners are designed to be people who are identify as members of the LGBT community, and the losers are females, actual females, because this obliterates our rights, and people of faith who believe in sexual difference, believe that that we're created male and female, or who believe in uh, marriage as between a man and a woman. So it it really 
upends existing law. And, and as I said, it's sort of a, a winner take all. And for that reason, uh, there's a lot, a lot more to say about it, but it is uh, very, very problematic. Right. I'm wondering, can you give us a, just a sense of where this bill is in the federal or, you know, in the legislative body of our federal government right now? Where, where, what's the status of this bill? Sure. It's, um, it was passed by the House, so it's being considered by the Senate. And that was, uh, there were hearings about a month ago that I testified for the Republicans opposing the law. And along with a woman named Abigail Schreier, who was focused mostly on the impact on girls' sports from this from the Equality Act, I was focused on what it does to the definition of women, but also uh, just what it does to religious liberty and and just the sweeping uh, changes there that would would make it almost impossible for someone who believes in biblical truth about male and female and about marriage to be a participant in the public square. Because one of the important things about this act is, uh, well, there are a couple of things. One is that it redefines what is a public accommodation. So existing civil rights law doesn't apply to everyone. It doesn't apply to tiny businesses. It doesn't apply to, you know, if you're selling something on Etsy as a, a private person or whatever. But this, under the Equality Act, it greatly expands who is going to be covered by civil rights law because instead of the four categories that are presently in civil rights law uh, regarding what is a public accommodation, restaurants, stadiums, things like that, it, it creates a very broad category, including things that are considered simply, quote, public gatherings or a public display. So imagine a, a Catholic high school, for example, and you're having, you open up your gym because you're having a basketball game between, you know, the high school boys from, from your school and the high school boys from a neighboring Catholic school. Well, all of a sudden that's public gathering. So if someone who identifies as transgender comes in and they feel like they're being discriminated against, or they're told that they cannot access the girls' restroom, even because they, they're a male, even though they, quote, identify as a female, they can sue for uh, discrimination under the Equality Act. So it, it is going to affect, because of this expansive definition of public accommodations, it will affect things from women's shelters, any sort of a faith-based activity, again, faith run by um, people who believe in either marriage or the difference between male and female. So if you're, if you're running a... Um, a homeless shelter or support groups for sexual assault survivors or things like that. Anywhere where just naturally speaking, we have some distinction that we make between males and females. All of those become subject to uh, giving rise to a lawsuit. And so that's, that's a very key thing to understand. And sometimes people say, oh, that's an exaggeration. Well, it's not. It's written into the law that a person's access... Right. Bathrooms and locker rooms and, and facilities like that shall be granted on the basis of, quote, gender identity. And gender identity is, is defined under the law by the person's self-perception, their appearance, their mannerisms. Their, it's how they identify regardless of sex. So this is no exaggeration. This is a real problem. So so that's the first thing that the Equality Act does. It expands this it, the reach expands this notion of public accommodations, which means it greatly increases your liability exposure. But then the other significant thing that it does is it yanks away, pulls away 
one of the key defenses that people of faith have been able to use and have drawn upon extensively over the past couple of decades. The law, the Equality Act specifically says that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act cannot be used as a defense against a claim brought under the Equality Act. So for example, if you're uh, the baker and who says, I just, uh, you know, I'll sell you a cupcake, but I'm not going to use my creative purposes to be part of this celebration of a same-sex wedding. And, and if they were wanting to use the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, if it were a lawsuit brought under the Equality Act, that defense is no longer available. And, and so the Religious Freedom Restoration Act it is vital to the ability of people of faith to live out our faith in action, you know, out in the public square. So, so again, the Equality Act expands the liability exposure and then takes away this defense. And so between those two things, it really tips the scales. And that's why, as I said, it's sort of a winner-take-all approach to civil rights with LGBTQ folks winning it all and people of faith and, and females really on the losing end of this. Right. I was wondering, Mary, could you just give us a, a quick, brief overview of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, just for, for any of our listeners who may not be completely aware of what that is? Sure. Um, it, it actually starts with a Supreme Court case that occurred just before the Religious Freedom Restoration Act was, was brought through Congress. There was a, a case called the Smith Decision, Smith v. Employment Division. Um, and the Supreme Court in that case, Justice Scalia wrote the opinion, said that, that um, if there was a neutral law of general applicability, that people of faith were not going to be able to to claim a religious freedom right under the First Amendment uh, to be able to, to practice something of their faith. What was at issue was a person who uh, smoked peyote, which was a, a controlled substance, right. it was illegal. And they said, well, I do this as a religious matter, but it was restricted and there were employment issues in terms of a firing and things like that. So the court was responding to that, but, but it was very problematic when, for the Supreme Court to basically say, we're not we're not going to require the government to show that it has a, a compelling reason to restrict your religious belief or that you've the government has taken the narrowest possible um, alternative in terms of if they have to burden your your religious freedom that they've taken the the least restrictive the the narrowest possibility in terms of doing that so in response to that smith decision you had a bipartisan effort in Congress to pass a federal statute that would protect people's religious freedom. So it was called Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Originally, it applied both to federal and state level um, claims. The Supreme Court ruled and said, this can apply in the federal arena, but not in the states. But this act, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, was passed. It was bipartisan. It was passed almost unanimously. I think the final thing in the Senate was like 97 to three, and it was signed by then President Clinton. So everyone <laughs> agreed that this was a really necessary thing. And it was a really good thing because it protects particularly people of minority religions who, you know, there, there isn't as much sympathy perhaps, and, and, or people may not be thinking of them when they're passing sort of this neutral law and they may not uh, be aware of how that's going to burden their religious freedom. So this was a, a really vital law. And what it says is that 
that if um, the plaintiff or the person can show that their religious belief is being, or that the exercise of their religious freedom is being burdened. So if there's a substantial burden on the expression of, of your religious mm-hmm. faith, then the, um, the onus flips to the government. Then the government has to show, it has to justify the law or the action that it's taking. It has to show there's a compelling reason for the state to place this burden on someone of, of religious faith. And then it has to show that it's the least restrictive alternative, that, that they really have honed in and respected religion enough not to, to try to you know, kill a fly with a hammer. <laughs> they're, they're just they're, they're targeting <laughs> yeah. whatever the, the issue is. And so it's, it's a reasonable thing. It's a balancing test. It doesn't mean that someone, someone's religious belief is always going to win. All it does is say, give you as a religious believer the opportunity to go to court and say, "Hey, wait a minute, this burdens my religious faith." You know, we we need to um, make sure that the government has a good reason for this, and then the the court looks at that, looks for that compelling um, state interest, and in, and in whether they've chosen the least restrictive alternative. So this is the first time the Equality Act is the first time that a bill would simply take this defense, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, off the table. So it's a purposeful, um, intentional drafting decision to take away a vital source of uh, protection for religious rights. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong, there are prominent members, or maybe even not so prominent members of the U.S. Congress who voted for the Religious Freedom Act back in the 1990s who are now uh, supporting a, a another federal law that essentially guts a previous federal law, mm-hmm. correct? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I could be wrong, but I, I'm somewhere back in there. I remember that I think it was Char- Chuck Schumer who who was one of the people who introduced the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. But in any event, it was people from uh, the far left to the the moderates right. to the everyone came together. Everybody did. But what we're seeing now is the strength of the LGBT lobby because they really view religion in many respects as the obstacle to them being able to have their um, their choices, their decisions, their desires validated and privileged under the law. And so that's the reason why they're they're trying to take the, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act off the table. It is specifically designed to tie the hands of religious believers, to put a gag over you, to, to prevent you from living out your faith if it comes into conflict with uh, these desired um, actions or, or, you know, expressions of identity. Right. So I'd like to go back to um, one of the things that you mentioned a few minutes ago, having to do with definition of sex. And a, a little history on this. I mean, the, there was a, a previous version of this bill that was passed in the previous Congress. It didn't go anywhere in the Senate. This was under the, the Trump administration. Now we're under the Biden administration and the House of Representatives has passed it again. And when it was passed back in 2000, the first one was passed back in 2019, uh, I actually wrote a, a little piece. It's called "The Ten Harms of the Equality Act" for for the NCBC. So I, I I read the bill in detail, and this new bill is practically a carbon copy of the previous one. And the one, th- I mean, there were a lot of things that struck me about the bill, including things you just said. But the thing that I I just cannot get my head around is in the section on definitions and rules where you said where they define sex, and I, and I just want to read this because I want. 
I want our listeners to just hear this, hear this language. And Mary, maybe get your comment on this. So according to, and I'm reading directly from the bill, it says, quote, the term race, color, religion, sex, including sexual orientation and gender ideology, or national origin used with respect to an individual includes, and here's the money line, it includes a perception or belief, even if inaccurate, concerning the race, color, religion, sex, including sexual orientation and gender uh, gender identity, or national origin, respectively, of the individual. So if I'm reading this correctly, and tell me if I'm wrong, please tell me if I'm wrong, basically what this bill is saying is that your sex, not to mention your race or your national origin, which actually raised questions about that as well too, but your sex is defined as your perception or belief, even if inaccurate, of who you are. Well, is that insane, or, or or am I am I just reading this wrong? Well, no, you're not reading it wrong. But it, there, um, the implication of that language is is broader in this sense that that even when you're talking about something like sexual orientation, so they, they this bill adds protections for sexual orientation. Purpose of that kind of language is that let's say someone is um, they don't consider themselves gay or lesbian, but they think they're being discriminated against because someone perceives them to be. Mm-hmm. They sue under this under this act. So so that's that's the purpose in other realms. Same thing with race or, or national origin. But in terms of sex, the whole idea of self perception that's what gender identity is. I mean, gender identity right. is is nothing more than an interior sense, your perception of who you are, how you want to identify, and then you know, expressing it, acting it out, clothes, mannerisms, things like that. So this definition of sex that's in the Equality Act nowhere validates the idea that we we have males and females, that we are biologically different. It, so in that sense, it differs from the Bostock decision, which was the Supreme Court's decision in 2020, which allowed sexual orientation and gender identity protections to be brought into Title VII protections under the definition of sex. So they they redefined sex, Mm -hmm. Justice Gorsuch. But his premise was that he was going to operate on the the presumption that that sex was uh, the biological difference between males and females. I don't have the exact um, language in front of me, but, but it acknowledged the biological difference. His point in saying that discrimination on the basis of sex includes discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity was to say that an employer really can't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation without considering someone's sex. In other words, you're you're aware of their sex and you're taking that into account when you're thinking about their sexual orientation, but he didn't negate that definition. He said, we're just going to presume we're going to operate on that presumption here in the equality act. There is no acknowledgement. There's not even a nod to this idea that we are created male or female. And then it's immutable. Our sex is immutable and sex has been protected under the law with some exceptions um, that based on that that very real biological difference. So the definition here makes no no mention, no reference to that, and instead uh, expands the definition 
in other directions to include sexual orientation, gender identity, again, your self-perception, uh, pregnancy, and, and quote, related conditions, but never acknowledges, never validates, never, um, you know, puts into the law the real definition of what sex is. So it's, it's radical. (laughs) It's radical. Right. So let me ask you a question. So, and, and put your lawyer hat on here for a second. So let's say, um, God forbid the Senate passes this and Joe Biden signs it. The Equality Act goes into law. Can I then, Joe's a lot, I can say, you know, I perceive myself as a woman. Can I then go into any public, you know, I'm at the airport, I can use the women's bathroom, everything else. And if I get in trouble, I can sue that entity for violation of my civil rights. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay, That's what I thought. Mm -hmm. And it's not, you know, one thing when I was talking about how it expanded liability by this notion of, of public accommodations, it also reaches anyone who is accepting federal money as a, a beneficiary of a federal program, a grantee, things like that. So, so it's, you know, anyone who's in that funding stream, you are bound by this. So yes, <laughs> someone walks in, you know, once the Equality Act comes along, you can be Joe today and two minutes later, call yourself Josephina and demand access to a woman's locker room, a woman's restroom. Yep. And, and nobody can deny that to you unless they want to be sued. Right. Yep. And, and just to, to, to bring this maybe to its, bring this discussion to its logical, crazy conclusion, this definition doesn't just include sex, it includes race, it includes national origin as well, too. So if I'm, again, put your lawyer hat on, um, reading this, can I say, well, you know, for people who know me, I'm Caucasian. Um, can I then say, okay, uh, Mary, I'm black, and now I am, um, I, I have affirmative action uh, protections or affirmative action um, you know, that applies to me. Or national origin, if let's say I'm, I'm not a citizen of the United States, could I come over the border and say, well, I perceive myself to be a citizen of the United States. And does that make me a citizen of the United States? I, yeah. I, I'm just wondering what the implications of this are. Yeah, no, no. The difference there is that these other terms are defined under under the law. The problem with the Equality Act is how it redefines sex. So it no longer roots it in an actual real definition of sex, whereas race is still race, national origin is still national origin. But that that reference that you made earlier to that language about perception of is to cover the situation where someone misperceives the reality of whether you're black. They think you're black, so they discriminate against you on the basis of race. You can bring a claim even if you don't have you know, any claim to being black. So, so that's, that's the difference. It's, it's all in the definitions. And so the real sleight of hand here, because of the purpose of the Equality Act is, is focused on LGBTQ. The real sleight of hand here is in the definition of sex and, and basically making it meaningless. Sex. Yeah, no, that's very helpful. Thank you, because that's that that line right there, or that that definition, has always it struck me as very, very odd, and that brings a lot of clarity. So that's wonderful, Mary. What do we do? How do we respond to the Equality Act? Well, I think one is people need to speak up. Well, they need to educate themselves on it. So presumably, right. people are listening to this podcast, you know, or many of the others that have been been done, the USCCB, others. Um, you have to understand what's at stake. Because uh, 
if you just listen to the mainstream media, or if you listen to the um, arguments coming from the other side, you will come away with a completely radically wrong understanding of what's at stake. And that was one of the things that struck me during when I was giving testimony in front of the Senate. The um, the person who's the head of the human rights campaign was an, was a witness as well. And he was flat out misrepresenting what was in the bill. He was deceptive. He, so he would use language like saying, well, the Equality Act does not repeal the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. True enough, it does not repeal it. It makes it completely unavailable to you by, by specific provision. But it's a deception because it, people think, oh, okay, well, if it doesn't repeal it, well, what's the big deal? Well, it does does you no good if it's out of your reach. And and what this the Equality Act does is it takes it off the table, puts it out of your reach as a defense there. So you you have to um, understand what's at stake, get the facts, and then you need to speak with people because I think the average person of good faith, common sense, when they hear what's at stake, is is just gonna shake their heads and say, Well, wait a minute, that can't be it. You know, that, that can't be right. I want to be fair to people. I don't want to be cruel. <laughs> but this is just too far. Um, and in fact, that was another sort of line of argument that that I've heard from people who say, look, uh, some new people who identify as LGBTQ are suffering all this discrimination. So let's just pass the bill and we'll let the, the courts sort it out later. And that is a, a terrible idea for any public policy, but it's particularly problematic here because we're talking about the moment this is passed, you're talking about people of faith and women immediately losing protections that currently exist under the law. So it's not like this is an add-on or some neutral thing that we can sort out the details later. As I said, it, it drastically tips the scales and is winner take all. And so in the three or four years it might take to get something up to the Supreme Court to have the court slap down uh, some of these provisions as unconstitutional, you're going to have a lot of damage done. And you're also shaping people's beliefs right. about what's true and what's fair because Another aspect to this, Joe, is that you know you and I and people who believe in the difference between male and female, or who believe that marriage is between a male and female, under this, this law, we are by definition discriminators. We're, we're by implication bigots, and so that is is like a, a, a looming a scarlet letter that if this passes. Right away, people who disagree with those um, positions, ideas that it, this pushes through, are, are branded bigots. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And Mary, you mentioned education. Education is 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 extremely important. And I just want to plug you guys once again. I mean, we talked about this in part one of our interview. Um, the Person and Identity Project, absolutely fantastic website. Pers Personandidentity.com, correct? Is the, yes. Is, yes. Is the website. Mm -hmm. Go there. I mean, the... Um, Mary, your group, the uh, the Catholic Women's Forum at the Ethics Public Policy Center, has put together an absolutely fantastic website, and so please go and 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 see the information they have there. Mary, one um, further question on this: I was wondering, could you comment on this Fairness for All Act? What is what is that? I'm I'm and admittedly I'm not as familiar with that. So if you, if you could give us a little background as to what that act is. 
Sure. So at the end of the hearings on the Equality Act, one of the senators, Senator Tillis from North Carolina, was talking about his concerns over what the Equality Act did in terms of depriving people of religious liberty and in terms of wiping out female sports and things. And he, and he said, you know, if we could just have a compromise. And immediately in the sort of the aftermath of that, there were people saying, well, we have a compromise. We have this bill called Fairness for All that was introduced by uh, Representative Chris Stewart from Utah and has the support of some uh, significant backers in the Mormon community, some in the evangelical community. And they've, they're modeling it on some state legislation that Utah had agreed to or that Utah passed that tried to, to broker a compromise between the um, the asserted rights of people in the LGBTQ community and the concerns, the very valid concerns that when these rights clash with believers, we need to have some way to protect the free exercise of people of faith. The, there are a couple of different problems. One, it, um, the fairness for all compromise really isn't a compromise in this sense. It it adopts and, and builds in those very same categories. Sexual orientation, gender identity are now protected as part of uh, discrimination laws against sex discrimination. So, and those, those categories are problematic because gender identity, just by definition, is a person's self-perception regardless of sex. So it gives people rights to, to just identify as they wish, to define themselves as they wish, which means automatically you're taking away women's protections and you're putting at risk religious liberty protections. What the Fairness for All does, and this is why they call it a compromise, is it has um, a more restrictive definition of, of public accommodations than what you would find in the Equality Act. And it allows some measure of free exercise for religious organizations, not for individuals, but for religious organizations. But I look at it, when I read it, my, my takeaway was what Fairness for All does is it, it sort of puts religious people in these places. Like you can be who you want. You can have your basketball game and not have to open your bathrooms to people who identify however. You, because it's, it um, attaches religious freedom protections to certain places that are owned by or operated by religious organizations. Again, it doesn't do anything for the individual. Uh, but, but then the bigger problem is that it also is allowing this definition to take hold. So in effect, what Fairness for All does is it says, well, it's discriminatory if you don't acknowledge and affirm my gender identity, my, my self-perceived identification as a male, even though I'm a female, uh, and, and you're still a bigot, but we'll let you be a bigot over here on your property. <laughs> that, that's basically the message that fairness for all. So it's not a, it's not a viable compromise. And in fact, my contention, I've said this to folks out in Utah, is that it has not worked well for, for example, members of the Mormon faith. In Utah, there's a lot of talk about how this is great. They're not getting sued for operating their churches and, and whatever. But their kids who are attending public school are suffering the very same onslaught of this propaganda about who we are 
because it's mainstream through the schools. And there's no way they can stop that under Fairness for All. And they're seeing that. They're seeing, you know, a spike in LGBT identification under among their kids, a repudiation and challenging of the Mormon church's provisions, respecting the difference between males and females and marriage between male and female. So it's having a negative impact. They, they've still got their properties and their, their places to worship, but you know, what's coming through in the air and the message from the law is it's bigoted if you hold to these truths and go be bigots over there as long as we allow you to do that. Because that's the other thing that we know just by history when religious believers are, are you know, sent to the ghetto or given certain places where you can go be free, uh, inevitably that real estate shrinks. And that's what we could expect. Right. As well. Right. Oy, 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 oy. Anyway, all right. So what I'd like to do do something a little bit different in our podcast today, and, and it's it's a little quiz for our listeners. So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna summarize the Equality Act with a series of nine statements. And Mary, I'm gonna ask you to answer true false. They're all true false questions. So at home, if you're taking the quiz, true false, you get a 50% chance of of getting the right answer here. So Mary, I'm going to say the statement. Can you let us know if the statement is true or false? And then feel free to comment on any of these statements. All right. All right. First first statement, true, false. According to the Equality Act, sex no longer means male or female. Absolutely true. That is absolutely true. And we talked about that. True, false. Second statement, the Equality Act creates a protected class of people based solely on an individual's subjective and changeable perception of self. True. That's what gender identity means. And and it's completely subjective. Yep. And we discussed that one as well. Third one, the first three are easy. Mm -hmm. Actually, the first four. Actually, they're all kind of easy when you get right down to it. But... Third statement, true, false. The Equality Act states that the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act will not apply to issues regarding sexual orientation or gender identity. True. If by issues you mean discrimination claims. So, yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank so it's absolutely that. true. Absolutely true. Statement number four. The Equality Act opens women's bathrooms, locker rooms, shelters, etc. to anyone who wants to use them, including sexual predators. True. Because sexual predators don't usually wear a sign saying, I'm a sexual predator. But we already have evidence from other countries as well as in the U.S. of males who are taking advantage of gender identity provisions to, quote, identify as female in order to gain access. We're seeing it in California prisons. We've seen it in in, uh, bathrooms, in stores. It's a known problem. So, yes, that's true. Yep, absolutely. All right. And again, all of this is because of the Equality Act. All right, statement five, true, false. Mm -hmm. Kind of a related statement. Under the Equality Act, the teacher who monitors the girl's locker room at your child's school or the TSA officer who who performs private screenings for women at the airport, that person can be a biological male who self-identifies as a female. Yes. Yes. That is true. And that should scare the heck out of every parent. Yeah. And if I'm remembering the language, it says for, for, uh, is it something, bona fide occupational qualifications, they, it's, it's based on, 
It's based on gender identity, not on biological sex. Yeah, and that's an important distinction because there are some places in the law that permit sex, quote, sex discrimination. In other words, you can specify that you need to hire a female for a particular job if it's, quote, a bona fide um, occupational qualification. So, for example, um, in female prisons, they typically staff them with female guards because if you've got to do strip searches out of respect for the right. dignity of the person and the dignity of the person who's got to do that search, you make it someone of the same sex. That goes out the window here because it all- Not is, anymore. It, because BFOQs are going to be based on gender identity, not the reality of male-female difference, but however you identify in that moment. Yeah. I just thought of another question, so we're going to add number 10. True, false. The Equality Act, among other things, means that men, boys can compete in girls' sports. True. True. All they have to do is identify as, as a girl or a woman or however the category is framed. What was formerly for girls is now open to any male who chooses to identify that way. Right. And interestingly, though, there are a number of states, or a few states, I should say, maybe not a number of states, there are a few states that recently have passed laws that said, no, uh, mm -hmm. biological males will, will compete against biological males and biological females will, will compete against biological females. So that's good, although, you know, who knows what's going to happen in terms of in terms of the Equality Act. Right. The um, uh, there, I think there are five states that have passed this right now. And there are many more. I think there's another 20 that are considering laws like this, but they are, unfortunately, the pushback from the LGBT lobbies is that these states are dis are saying trans kids, kids who identify as trans, cannot play sports. And that's not all what these laws do. It just says right. that division of sports is according to biological sex. So you can play. <laughs> you know, if you're a male and you identify as a female, you have a place to play. You just have to play with the males because your body, your everything is... Uh, that's what makes it fair. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Next statement, true, false. According to the Equality Act, the belief that marriage is between one man and one woman will be considered discriminatory under federal law. Yes. Yep. And you talked about that previously. Yep. So our our church's teaching is discrimination. We're we're bigots, Mary. Yeah, well, if this passes. <laughs> if this passes. If this, you're correct, correct, correct. And the other thing is we know we're not. We don't define ourselves by what the law says. We're, we're into truth here. And uh, the truth is we're not. You know, we, we deeply believe that every person has dignity given by God, no matter how they, quote, identify. However, that doesn't mean that it's right for the law to try to compel us to affirm what we know is not true, that if a male is identifying as a female, it is true that he's a female. I, I mean, he's a male. He is not the woman he claims to be. And so that's what we're defending. And that's what is, uh, would give us the label of being bigots or discriminators, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Statement seven, true, false. The Equality Act compels foster care and adoption agencies, including Catholic agencies, to place children in households where they will be denied mother-father parenting. It also compels them to place children with people who self-identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, gender, queer, and anything else. True, false? It is absolutely true. Absolutely true. You know, would no longer have the right as a Catholic organization, for example, to say we are preferring married couples because we believe that's the best place for, for children. 
you wouldn't, you could not make any distinction based on sexual orientation or gender identity, which right. means a lot of Catholic uh, adoption agencies would close their doors and foster care agencies and, and service agencies because that belief matters. It, you know, it matters. Yeah, and some already have. Correct me if I'm wrong. There is a case in front of the U.S. Supreme Court as we speak. Now, we're, we're recording on April 28th of 2021. So hopefully within the next, oh, well, the, the session ends in June, I believe. The decisions come out in June. So we'll hear by then. But there's a case. It's the Fulton case um, where it's, it's Catholic Social Services here in Philadelphia is, is essentially um, – brought suit against the city of Philadelphia for this very thing. So the Supreme Court is actually dealing with this question right now. Any insight or any, you want to make any prediction of where the Supreme Court's going to go with that? It's always risky to predict what it's <laughs> going to do. I, I felt very optimistic after the arguments, you know, listening to the questions of the judges, the, um, the arguments made by the attorneys. It's, it's the right argument to allow the Catholic organization freedom to live out you know, their faith. And because, you know, that's the other thing that that is sort of lost here, that if you look at the great good that is done in our society by people of faith, by organizations, by churches that are motivated by faith, it's, it's a tremendous amount of good. And it saves the federal government, the state government, billions of dollars. Right. But, you know, the, the desire of some to be validated in these identities is so important that they're willing to say, we'd rather not have you participating in the public square if you don't get on board with our ideological project, which is to allow people to self-define, to define marriage as, as we want it, to allow families to be whatever adults happen to travel together at the moment you know, just really breaking down the fundamental structures and institutions that have served our country so well. Statement number eight, true, false, under the Equality Act, mental health professionals will be barred from one, exploring the reasons for a patient's, including a child's perception that he or she is the quote unquote wrong gender. And two, they will also be barred from determining any underlying mental health conditions that these people may be suffering from. True, false. Well, true, again, barred, meaning they would be at risk of a, a discrimination suit because it doesn't specifically say, you know, you're barred from doing this. Although it does, there is a provision outlawing, quote, conversion therapy. Exactly, it's yeah. In the Equality Act. And so it, it depends on, on what that means. But again, under the law, if you're including this expansive definition of gender identity under the Equality Act, their purpose is to say that you cannot... To try to help a child integrate their feelings to accept the body that they have is somehow discriminatory because you're, quote, engaging in conversion therapy, which, of course, is not talk therapy. You've got to explore. You've got to get to the root of why it is that a child is rejecting their sex body. Why is it so horrible to be a female? You know, what's usually there are deep, uh, often traumatic reasons underlying this. And so, you're right. It's true. Under the Equality Act, mental health professionals would no longer be able to explore that because to do so would be to suggest that there's something, quote, wrong with being transgender or, um, you know, identifying in, in all these different ways. So, yeah, mental health professionals, no matter, and you wouldn't have your religious freedom uh, sort of 
ticket to say, hey, wait a minute, give me space, at least as a Catholic professional, uh, I need to be able to operate within the context of my faith, even as part of Catholic charities or something. That would, that would go out the window. Yeah. Just as a, a source, as you were speaking, I, I was thinking Walt Heyer. Um, I'm, I'm probably aware of Walt. He's, he talks about this a lot. He's a, a man. He quote unquote transitioned to a woman, detransitioned back to a man. And he talks at length about the fact that just it was the mental health issues that were just never addressed. And when he finally realized what was really at, what was really the root cause or causes of these perceptions that he was a woman, he, he, he said, you know, we need to have, you know, good mental health counseling for these people. Yeah. And, you know, there was a recent case <clears throat> just in the past nine months or so that, that um, was decided in the UK where a young woman who had a dysfunctional family background, trauma in her background, by the time she was 15, she was convinced that that the source of her mental health problems must be that she was really transgender because she, people told her that and she explored on the internet and, and you get all this affirmation back that, that sort of promises these hurting kids that the solution, the way to feel better is to come out and embrace their, their supposedly authentic gender identify as however they want gender queer or, or, uh, the opposite sex or, or something in between, anything non-binary. So she at 16 was put on puberty blockers and then put on cross-sex hormones, ended up having a double mastectomy. In other words, she traveled that transgender path, which we know it's like hitting dominoes. Once you start on there with the puberty blockers, like close to 100%, it's between 97 and 100% of kids who are put on puberty blockers continue on to cross-sex hormones. And when you do that, you lose your fertility, you compromise your sexual function, there are changes to your body that you cannot reverse, that cannot you cannot get back. But to make a long story short, after she had gone through all of this, here she was, early 20s, and she said she realized, here she was, she'd done everything except the genital surgery and she looked in the mirror and she said, I know I'm not a male and I can keep trying, but it just isn't real. And she, she started to deal with, to grapple with the underlying wounds that she had, you know, the, the tremendous sorrows and loss and abandonment and, and all those things she felt as a kid. And her point, the reason why she sued the National Health Service was not to get money. This was not a claim for damages. It was a, a lawsuit designed to get them to rethink their informed consent laws and to say there was no way that as a 16, 15, 16, 17-year-old, she could possibly understand what she was committing to. But more importantly, once she said she was transgender, nobody asked anything further. She said nobody asked why. Nobody explored and, and took time to say, you know, why is it that it's so painful for you to think of yourself as a woman, to perceive yourself in a way that, you know, is, is fundamentally true because you can't change sex? Nobody asks those questions. And that's the big risk here, that once you have something like a provision outlawing, uh, quote, conversion therapy, and, and you define that in a way to include simple talk therapy that explores the, the source, tries to get to the root at the uh, root of a child's uh, tumultuous and, and hurting feelings so that you can bring healing. If you can't do that, you're going to have this, this 
trajectory that every kid is going to be put on. And that's that's unfortunately what we're seeing because a number of states have already passed, uh, quote, conversion therapy bans that extend to gender identity. And, you know, just one more point on that. This is sort of a problem or a solution without a problem, right? There's no, if you, if you canvass the uh, state oversight bodies, uh, oversight of mental health professionals, they're not getting all these complaints about people doing abusive, coercive tactics for, uh, to try to move someone to a different um, attraction, sexual attraction or identification. They're not. There are zero complaints. And that's been brought out in, in a number of these states where people have tried to push back against these conversion therapy bans. So there's no, you know, there isn't this abusive practice taking place. This is designed to shut down the options for families because it it prevents the mental health profession from saying, you know, for a female to identify as a male, there's something else going on there. There's there's something that needs healing because the ideological position is there's nothing wrong with being transgender. It's perfectly normal variation, gender variation. And so don't do anything that's going to stigmatize us. It's going to suggest that there's a problem here. So for that political goal, yeah. we're going to consign kids to, uh, you know, to a path that fails to, to bring them true healing. Hmm. Wow. Great answer. And that, that leads us directly into the last statement. True, false. The Equality Act compels Catholic and other healthcare institutions to provide the full range of medical interventions for gender dysphoria, even for children. And this includes so-called affirming psychotherapy, puberty-blocking hormones, cross-sex hormones, and so-called sex reassignment surgeries. True, false, Mary? True. True. And we're already seeing that from uh, an executive order and changes to HHS regulations that the Biden administration has put in place, uh, just requiring health Catholic healthcare organizations to do this or face a discrimination suit. The Equality Act would embed that in the law and again, create that right of action for anyone who uh, feels discriminated against. And, and just to clarify that for your, your listeners, it's a situation like this. If you have an OBGYN, uh, part of their practice inevitably is going to be to do hysterectomies on women who have, for example, uncontrolled bleeding, or they have uterine cancer or fibroid tumors or something. So there are justifiable reasons for the person's health for an OBGYN at a Catholic hospital to be doing a hysterectomy. However, the transgender idea is that if someone identifies, a female identifies as male and she starts on these cross-sex hormones, one of the things the hormones does is it causes atrophy of the vagina and of the uterus. So oftentimes there's, there's pain, there's bleeding, and the only way that gets resolved for many of these young women is if they pursue a hysterectomy. And so it's a, a problem that's created by putting them on testosterone, which is not natural to the body, and then they want to be rid of their uterus because it's it's part of the female body and they're trying to feel more like a man. So they come to this OBGYN and they say, look, we know you do hysterectomies. We want you to do, you know, I want you to do mine, but I want you to do it for the purposes of quote, gender affirmation. And a conscientious uh, OBGYN, whether he's Catholic or not, is going to look at that and say, is this a healthy thing to take out 
uh, a young woman's uterus because we've induced uh, pain by by taking these cross sex hormones. No, there's a better remedy for that. Stop taking the, the testosterone. And so, from their medical judgment, you know, from their medical judgment, they would say, "No, I'm not going to do this." But for a Catholic doctor, you know, you look at this and you say, Mm-mm, "I can't do it." You know, the church says we do not engage in sur- surgeries that mutilate the body. That surgeries that are um, right. do not lead towards healing and 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 that's what this is. And so the Catholic healthcare professional would probably have two reasons. One, good medical judgment, and, and two, their conscientious objection to participating in a procedure that they believe they deeply believe is immoral. And yet under the Equality Act, that OBGYN would be sued for discrimination. Over. Crazy, crazy stuff. Mary, as we as we conclude this this portion of our interview on the Equality Act. Are there any additional legal or or political challenges regarding either the Equality Act itself or gender ideology as a whole that you'd like our listeners to be aware of? Sure. I think um, a lot of your listeners are probably hearing about action that's going on in the states. There are something like 30 of the states right now that uh, where the state legislators are considering various bills. Some of them uh, insist on biological distinctions in sports designed to to save girls' sports from being intruded upon by males who identify as females. Some of the state laws are um, restricting what's called gender affirming health care for for minors, and gender affirming is the label that they put on uh, to sort of give a nice gloss to the fact that you're causing. Um, or engaging in the chemical castration of children by putting them on puberty blockers and on cross-sex hormones. They lose their fertility uh, before they're old enough to drive. So a number of states have, um, have passed or are considering laws where they're, they're saying, you know what, We're, we want to protect minors, just like the court in the UK did. We want to protect minors from undergoing procedures that they cannot possibly understand the ramifications of and that have lifelong ramifications. And not only that, there's no evidence that these things cause any benefit, even in terms of mental health and and lessened risk of suicide, not in the long run. And initially there can be a short-term benefit and feeling of hooray, you know, I'm I'm on my way. But uh, so people need to realize that when they hear about what's going on in the States, they need to to think and and, um, examine this and not be satisfied with the headlines. I've seen a lot of headlines about state legislators, for example, denying kids health care, denying, quote, trans kids health care. That's not right. what it's about. A, a right. kid, a boy who identifies as a girl who falls off his bike and breaks his leg, there's no place in the country that's going to deny him uh, treatment for his broken leg. The question is whether you're going to uh, permit physicians to take advantage of this this confused minor and say, have I got a solution for you? You know, your mental health's bad, you're feeling bad, you don't like your breasts, whatever. Have I got a solution for you? And uh, leading them down a path that one does not solve that that underlying interior emotional pain. And number two, causes drastic harm to the body that they have. And so that's what that's what's at issue in these state uh, situations. And I think legislators need to hear from people to say, you know what, protect these kids. Even if you 
you think it's fine for adults to do what they want, which is a, a different problem. At the very least, let's look at these, what's being done to minors. And, and we're on the cusp, really, I think, of a medical scandal that sooner or later, there, um, someone's going to empower the plaintiff's bar and there's going to be lawsuits that are going to uh, make that. We're hoping. Yeah. Well, they're actually one of those states, I can't remember which one it was, had one of the laws that they proposed was extending the statute of limitations so that these kids, when they get to be, for example, like Carabelle, the young woman in the UK, when she's 25 and she starts to sort through the emotional issues and realizes, oh my gosh, look what happened to my body. And that was not the right. problem. Yeah. Uh, to be able to turn around and sue. And, and I think that's a great idea, frankly. I think we need to hold these doctors accountable because they are making tons of money off of the misery of young people. And, and that's unconscionable. So, so to pay attention to what's going on in the state, speak up, see what you can do to, to reinforce the spines of your state legislators to help them do the right thing. This concludes part three of my interview with Mary Rice Hassan. In the fourth and final part, Mary discusses the role of the Catholic Church in combating gender ideology. For more information on these topics and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you would like to subscribe to our Bioethics Public Policy Report, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at jzalot at ncbcenter.org. For archived editions of our podcasts, please go to our website, hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button, and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, please remember that the NCBC has a 24-hour consultation service. You can contact us by phone at 215 877 2660, or by going to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and clicking on Ask a Question. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.